I love that song. Isn't that good? That's the one you sing for the rest of the day. I love every minute of it. Well, in case you're just joining us this summer, we have been looking at the book of Acts. And uh, if you think about what we've covered in just the first three chapters, there's been a lot that has happened in a relatively short period of time. If you go back to the beginning in Acts chapter 1, you'll remember how the disciples spent 40 days with the risen Christ. And we learn from the scripture that Jesus was talking to them about kingdom promises. And then he instructed them to wait in Jerusalem, and they did so for about 10 days for what the Father had promised. We know how that promise was fulfilled at Pentecost, when the first fruits of the Spirit were poured out in the life of those 120 disciples gathered in the upper room. And then those disciples left the upper room and walked out into the temple grounds, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And we know that in that time there was a a miraculous event that was going on because as they were proclaiming the gospel, they were speaking in tongues that were not their own, known languages that other people understood clearly what they were communicating. And some heard this and saw the miracle and, and asked, what does this mean? Others dismissed it and said, pay no attention, they're probably just drunk. And Peter stood and gave the very first sermon uh, of his to this very confused crowd. He explained how what they were witnessing was the evidence of God's hand at work. That Jesus, whom they had crucified, God had raised from the dead. And he is the divine redeemer, both Lord and Christ. As Matt shared in his sermon, when the people heard these words and the message that Peter proclaimed, it says they were pierced to the heart. We we learned that in that day there were over 3,000 new believers who joined those 120 disciples to form what became the very first Christian church. A church, as we learned, that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And every day, the Lord was adding to their number those that were being saved. Every day, it says that they were filled with gladness in proclaiming the good news of God. You see, that first church in Jerusalem was was experiencing tremendous growth in a very short period of time. And even the Jewish community, it says, was taking notice because it tells us that they had favor with everyone because they saw the goodness that was being put on display in the life of these disciples in the early church. So much was happening in such a short period of time, including, as we learned last week, signs and wonders at the hands of the apostles. We learned about the man who was born lame, who was completely Restored a miracle that came with the message. And the message is this We are the man who was born lame. Because that miracle is a picture of our salvation. Our lives deformed and twisted by the presence of sin. 
But through faith in Christ, we have new life. Our sins are forgiven. Our life is restored through faith in Jesus Christ alone. As we talked about last week, don't miss the very important fact that God is so patiently pursuing the very people who sent his son to the cross. They disowned the one that God had sent to deliver them, but God is slow to anger. He's so rich in mercy. He wants none to perish, clearly, but all to to come to eternal life. Yes, his judgment is coming, but his salvation is now. That's the message that they're proclaiming. I know we, we don't like to talk about judgment. It's something that's a bad word in today's society, but the fact of the matter is judgment is at the heart of the gospel. If we miss that, we overlook the very heart of the good news. Because Jesus took the judgment that we deserved upon himself. Our sins are forgiven because his blood that was shed on our behalf. By his wounds, we are healed. That's the message that Peter and the other apostles are consistently proclaiming to the crowd. It's either judgment or Jesus. But there were those back then, as there are today, who have no need for a Savior. They have a pattern of life that seems to work for them. They have a religious system that's not too demanding. Which means that Jesus becomes a stumbling block when you've got everything working your way. And repentance becomes an offense to our pride. All this that has gone on in these days in the early church have led us to what I consider to be a defining moment in the life of the disciples. And I think if we'll listen closely, it is a defining moment in our life as well. Because it is easy to proclaim faith in Christ when life is good. But it's not so easy when life is hard. When we face persecution. It's a defining moment about what we really believe. I think it's in that time when Jesus is all you have that you have to ask yourself, is that enough? If Jesus is all you have, is that really, in your heart, is that really all you need? It's a defining moment. And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for what you've already done in our heart by what we've had together through fellowship, through giving, through singing such incredible songs with such amazing words that put our heart right where it needs to be on you and your great name. So, Father, by the power of that great name, would you do a great work in our hearts this morning? Would you transform us? Would you take blinders off of our eyes and our ears and help us see and hear the truth of your word in a life-changing way? 
Lord, I believe you still do miracles. And part of the miracle is the miracle for seeing what is true when we open your word. Would you do that miracle this morning in our lives? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Picking up where we left off last week, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, what we just looked at is a a carryover from what we walked through last week. The apostles are still on the temple grounds, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That lame man who has been healed is still walking with them. And in the midst of that crowd, these religious leaders kind of maneuver their way through. And I believe in the midst of a a mid-sentence, as Peter is preaching, they interrupt everything and say, hold on, wait a second. We're not going to do this anymore. Verse 2 says that they were greatly disturbed. That's way too soft of a translation. (laughs) They were angry. Their irritation had progressed to outrage. They had enough. So they take Peter and John, and as we will see, even the man who was once lame, who has now been healed, they take all three of these men and they throw them in jail. It's too late to do a trial that evening, so they leave them in jail until the next morning. Now, it's important to understand as we see these incidents taking place, uh, the authority of the men who have now maneuvered their way through the crowd. You see, as we know, the, the land during that time is under the Roman Empire, right? So all of the land is under Roman rule. However, the Sadducees have been given jurisdiction over the temple grounds. So what that means is the disciples are on their turf. Of these religious leaders, the Sadducees are by far the most politically powerful. They are the wealthy elite. Their status in society depends on their ability to keep the status quo. And clearly, the disciples are causing a little bit of a disturbance in the status quo, wouldn't you say? They're making waves and bringing attention and from the, from the perspective of these religious leaders, this is not a good thing. There's a man who is lame who has been healed. There is Jesus being preached. And we learn that there are 5,000 more who come to faith in Christ through the preaching of the apostles. Now, think about that. In just a matter of days, we have gone from 120 disciples to almost 10,000 new believers. So yeah, there's something going on in Jerusalem, and it has their attention. No wonder they're concerned. And notice why they're so upset, because it it tells us in verse 2, being greatly disturbed because two things. One, they were teaching the people, and two, 
proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the death. The reason they were upset is because the disciples did not have their credentials to be teaching on the temple grounds. They were not trained in a rabbinical school. To presume that they had qualifications to teach the people on the temple grounds was an insult to the religious leaders. Now, I can kind of relate to what's happening with the apostles here. Because when I decided to go to seminary, I sat down with an academic advisor at the seminary and I explained the path that I would need to take in order to work my way through seminary. I couldn't afford it offhand. And so what I knew I was going to need to do is stay full time at the hospital and go to Dallas on my vacation days during summer and winter sessions and take classes, full semesters in about three weeks at a time. It was not an easy path, but it was really the only path that I could take. So I explained on the front end what I was planning to do. I knew right up front I was going to be a non-traditional student with a non-traditional degree plan. Well, my advisor looked at me, and he said words I'll never forget. He said, well, if that's what you do, you will be an illegitimate pastor. To this day, when the enemy wants to get in my head, I hear those words over and over again. But that's why the religious leaders are so angry with the apostles. Because they were illegitimate teachers. And they were teaching on their turf. And not only that, it says the second thing they were upset about is that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And, and keep in mind, they didn't say they're proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It says they are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The issue is much bigger than what just happens with Jesus. This goes to all who believe. So what they're saying here is this is a kingdom concept. And it threatens the status quo because those in the power like the kingdom just like it is. Because they're the ones in control. If people get too excited about Jesus, then it disrupts their preferences. It dilutes their power, their influence. They want a a religious system that works in their favor. And the truth is, Jesus just gets in the way. Look what it says in verse 5. And it came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, As we read this passage, I really want you to get a picture of the scene that is being portrayed here. These verses describe a courtroom of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of that day. It's the very same setting that would have taken place when Jesus was put on trial. 
These are the most powerful people in the Jewish society. They are the wealthy elite. They make the rules. They lay down the law. But it's a little bit like the mafia because it has become a family business. Notice it says the high priest is Annas. Well, actually, it's Caiaphas, his son-in-law. But Annas is like the godfather, right? He's like the godfather. He's the one that makes the rules. I kind of see him in the center there. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. (laughs) It's a family business. That's their power. It's within the family. These men are having great power and great influence. And they're all seated around in kind of a semicircle. And as we see in uh, verse 7, it says that they're placed right in the center of this circle of influence. And with that, they ask the question there at the, at the end of verse 7, by what power or in what name have you done this? And then look at what it says in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So clearly, the intimidation tactics of the religious leaders did not work. (laughs) Because Peter steps forward and boldly proclaims the gospel. He doesn't just give an answer. He gives a sermon, right? A a sermon that that centers really on a very key word there at the end of verse 9. We translate it in our English translation, made well. It's the Greek word sozo, and it literally means to be saved or delivered. And it's a, it's a key word because it has a dual meaning. It could, be mean, it could mean to be saved physically, or it could just as easily be made to say to be saved spiritually. So Peter is saying, if we are on trial for a sick man who has been saved, Let it be known. And then Peter gives the the heart of the message that he's given at least twice in his two sermons already. This man was saved through faith in Jesus Christ, who you crucified and God raised from the dead. This man has been healed because Christ has been exalted. It's in his name because he has All authority by which to heal this man. And then Peter quotes Psalm 118 verse 22. We read it in verse 11. He is the stone, speaking of Jesus, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. 
He's basically saying, look, guys, the reason you don't believe is because God said you wouldn't believe. You are technically fulfilling the prophecy of what he said would be true. You are the builders. You are the leaders of this nation. But you are rejecting the very one upon whom this nation has been built. He's the cornerstone. And then what I believe to be some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. Verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There it is again. Exact same Greek word. What we see here is that Peter's condemnation is coming with an invitation. He says, by which we, we, plural, including me, we must be saved. We are the lame man. The miracle is a picture of our salvation. We're all like the man born lame. Our lives twisted, distorted by the presence of sin. The miracle comes with a message, and that message is that salvation is through faith in Christ alone. Peter could not be more clear. There is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. And then look at how he continues in verse 13. Now they observed the confidence of Peter and John. And understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. This is good. (laughs) Here these noted scholars are speechless. They had no words to say in response to Peter's sermon. They just could not get their head around what just happened. These illegitimate teachers were speaking as if they were tenured professors. They knew the scripture and clearly they were not intimidated by the religious leaders. And then they realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, they've been with Jesus. Let me explain to you what just happened in this way. How many of y'all have ever been to the store Kirkland's? Kind of a home goods store? Yeah, most of you have been to Kirkland's. It's a really cool store, but it has a very strong odor, right? I think they pump potpourri through the air vents, right? And you know if you've been to Kirkland's because you smell like it after you leave that place, right? Well, the very same thing happens when you hang around Jesus. You absorb the fragrance of Christ. People begin to recognize, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, there's there's something different about you, Larry. You're not like other people. That's what's happening with the religious leaders. They smell Jesus on the disciples. They can see that their life has been influenced by that man. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 15. 
when they had ordered them to go out aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. <laughs> and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. See, at this point in the trial, those who are on trial, those three men, uh, Peter, John, and the man who had been healed, are asked to leave the council. So that now the council of men, these religious leaders, can confer among themselves about what they should do. And just to put it simply, they're in a pickle. They're in a difficult situation. No one can deny the miracle, right? There is a man who was born lame. Everybody knows who he is. He sits at the gate every single day. They watch him as they walk by. They give tokens to him out of obligation. And now he's standing among them. That's a fact. And everyone in Jerusalem knows that fact. But how? How was he healed? See, pride will not allow them to accept the apostles' testimony because they are the ones, they are the very same religious council that sent Jesus to the cross. And to believe in Jesus would require them to admit that they were wrong. And not just wrong about Jesus, be wrong about the resurrection be wrong about God's kingdom plan and their place in that kingdom plan. In the end, the religious leaders were unwilling to accept Jesus because they refused to surrender control. Jesus was a stumbling block that would just get in the way. And a call to repentance was an offense to their pride. So instead of relinquishing their control, they used it against the apostles. They leveraged their position of authority and they warned them. Warned them to no longer speak in that name. They won't even say his name. No longer speak in that name. And it's really more than a warning. It's a threat. And we're going to see that in the next few verses. Look at verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they called the three men back in. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. So they call them in back into the room to give their decision. And I believe there was some manipulation going on here. I think they presented it as if they were doing them a favor. I'll tell you what, guys. We're going to let this one slide. We're going to drop all charges as if they had any to begin with. And we're going to let you go this time. But just know, you cannot speak in that name any longer. See, they were fully expecting the apostles to hear their generous uh, conclusion and be thankful. Oh, thank you. So, oh, we're so pleased. Yeah, sure, we won't do that. But instead, Peter stood up and said, um, guys, I'm sorry. That's not going to happen. And then he explained why. 
he does so by turning the tables and now putting the Sanhedrin on trial. Because he asks a real simple question. He says, do you believe it's better for us to obey God or to obey you? In other words, who has greater authority on this issue? God or you? That's really the heart of this issue. The religious leaders could not accept Jesus because they were unwilling to relinquish their authority. The apostles could not obey the religious leaders because they were duty-bound to the ultimate authority of God in their life. Since he had told them, be my witnesses. That's why he says, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. That's what witnesses do. They speak about what they've seen and what they've heard. And they received that command from the Lord himself. And it's by his ultimate authority that they must continue. So look at what happens in verse 21. And when they had threatened them further, remember I said the warning would turn to threat. There it is. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. The warning turned into a threat. And very likely this judgment that they are now making will become the basis for any other interrogations that follow. In other words, we have no basis to punish you now, but let it be known. If you defy this command we are giving you, we will bring the hammer down. We've done it before. And we nailed him to a cross. And we'll do it again. Never mind the Jewish people are praising God. Never mind the fact that there was a man who had been lame for, as we see here, over 40 years. And he is leaping and praising God. But the religious leaders were blinded by their own pride. See, truth was on trial that day. Truth was on trial that day. And they refused to see it. And boy, I hope that this morning, as we walk through this passage together, that we will not be guilty of the same. Because embedded within the context of this passage are some important truths that we all need to see. And let me just highlight one of them that I want to ask you to consider. And it is this. Our decisions are ultimately determined by the one who has ultimate authority in our life. Our decisions are ultimately determined by the one who has ultimate authority in our life. And let me just walk through a few options. The first possibility is pride. This is the most obvious from our passage with the religious leaders, right? When pride rules my life, I give ultimate authority to me. When pride rules my life, I give ultimate authority to me. And as we see with the religious leaders, even a miracle won't change my mind. 
Pride is the great deceiver of the human heart. It causes us to make our decisions without regard to the truth. Even if that truth, like the man born lame, is staring you right in the face. Pride lets us, leads us down a path that ultimately leads to sin. It causes us to, to rationalize our decision. I want you to think back to the example of what we, what we see happening in the garden. Okay, I want you to think of Eve when she's considering the decision of whether to eat the apple or not. What does it tell us that she does? It says that she looks at the apple and says, it's good for food. She looks at the apple and realizes it's a delight to the eyes. She looks at the apple and says, there's so much good about it. How can this be wrong? She rationalizes. And and as she rationalizes, she ultimately comes to a decision of compromise. Compromise is that prideful decision to betray our conscience when we know what is right and yet we choose to do what is wrong we make our decision without regard to the truth we decide i'm the one that determines what's best for me i'm the ultimate authority and the more we rationalize the more we compromise the more we desensitize our heart. Now, it's kind of like taking a knife, and I'm, I'm kind of a knife, but I, I love knives, right? And, and I love to keep them razor sharp, right? But, but it's like taking that razor sharp knife and just rubbing it against concrete. Just rubbing it, rubbing it, rubbing it until that knife is as dull and you couldn't cut butter with it, right? Well, when we rationalize, And then we compromise. Eventually, we desensitize our heart so that it becomes so dull that it can't recognize right from wrong to save its life. Let me read you a passage from Ephesians 4, verse 18. I'm going to read it from the NIV because I like the way it says. It says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because, now listen, of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts having lost all sensitivity. In other words, they are dull. Their heart is dull. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and full of greed. They've lost all sense of right and wrong because all greed is, is a heart that is filled with pride. Pride is the great deceiver in the human heart. It is an anti-God frame of mind causes us to make decisions without regard to the truth. Jesus becomes a stumbling block to what I want to do. But we could also say say something similar about the other end of that spectrum. When I make decisions based on what you want me to do. When the opinion of others becomes the ultimate authority in my life. That's where we see the heart of Peter's argument. He asks the question, is it better for me to do what you want me to do or what God wants me to do? My family and I decided this past week to take a media fast. It was actually Graham's idea. We were going to take the week and we were going to get rid of all social media, all Instagram, all Twitter, all, all those things. And really, it was, ironically, 
uh, stimulated through a quote that came across my Twitter. <laughs> Before the media fast, by the way. By one of America's great theologians, Bill Murray. <laughs> Try Caddyshack, Bill Murray, that guy. But listen to what he says, because it really is profound. He says, social media is training us to compare our lives instead of appreciating everything we are. No wonder why everyone is always depressed. And isn't that relevant with the news that we've had in recent weeks of those who have taken their lives? Wealthy, successful, people who have it all. They felt like they didn't have anything to live for. See, when we live in accordance with what everyone else expects us to be, we never can become everything God's created us to be. When we try to live according to what everyone else expects us to be, we cannot ever become what God has created us to be. When the opinion of others becomes my authority, I completely lose sight of who I am in Christ. Bill Murray's right. And that's a depressing way to live life. So let me offer a final perspective of where I think we should all strive to live our lives more faithfully. It is the undeniable conviction of the apostles. It is a life of willing submission to the authority of God. The authority of God's word, the authority of God's spirit, the authority of God's church. When you look at the life of the disciples, that is an undeniable reality that you see in their lives. And I want you to also recognize that that is not a life filled with disappointment. Because of all the things that they are giving up. The scripture tells us that daily they were filled with. With what? Gladness. Gladness. They were praising God, not for what they didn't have, but for all that they had been given in Him. And here's how I, this is kind of what I would consider the litmus test of whether this is true in our life or not. Okay? It's this. Does your life have the fragrance of Christ? Does your life have the fragrance of Christ? Do others smell Jesus when they spend time with you? Now, I want you to go back to that imagery of Kirkland's, right? You don't take on the smell of Kirkland's by driving by the store. You've got to go in. And the longer you linger, the more you're going to take on the smell of that place. So that when you leave, people are going to know you've been there. Well, in the same way, just because you have a Bible on your shelf does not mean that you have that truth in your heart. You have to open it up and linger. Please, linger there. Let that truth soak in to your heart long enough to realize that those aren't just words on a page. They are a holy invitation to know the heart of God. This is about a relationship, okay? This is, this is what this is all about. This is about a relationship. 
Because the longer you linger, the more you understand what it means to walk in an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a holy invitation to know the heart of God. It is our relationship with Christ that becomes a sweet aroma to the world around us. It's a great passage that says precisely that. If you want to write it down, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Listen carefully. Listen carefully because what you're going to hear is that this is not my idea. This is the truth of God. Let it soak in. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us, listen, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, to some, it's the sweet smell of forgiveness and grace. And to others, it's an offense to their pride. Jesus is either a stumbling block or he's the cornerstone. It's just a matter of what you see. And I pray this morning that you see clearly. And that whatever blinders might be there, they, like Paul says, fall down like scales from your eyes. When you see the love of God so clearly, there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. What a beautiful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. The name above all names. The name by which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that the apostles are right. Jesus is Lord. God, I pray that we understand and and take that to heart in such a way that we long to know you more. And that we don't just give lip service to what it means to walk with Christ, but we spend time in your presence. We linger in your word. We fellowship with your people so that people around us begin to say, wait a second, there's something different about you. I smell Jesus on you. Lord, may we be that sweet aroma of Christ to the world around us. May our hearts be filled with gladness. May we rejoice in the gift of our salvation through faith in Christ alone. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.